If you had known Martin Luther, that 16th century German monk at the Erfurt Monastery, if you had known him, you probably would have thought he was really scary. He would have made you nervous. You'd have been concerned about him on one level, but he might have actually frightened you. Luther was so overwhelmed by his guilt before God, he so feared God's judgment that many people questioned whether or not he was actually sane. You can question if you know nothing about him by just hearing 100 days of fasting a year. And he took in two meals on those other days. He refused sufficient blankets to keep warm in his frigid cell where he was sometimes found lying unconscious on the floor, nearly frozen to death. Suffering, bringing the suffering upon his life that he would pay for his sins in some way. He would spend hours in the confessional booth confessing the previous day's sins. Hours. On one occasion, spending six hours confessing the previous day's wrongs. Luther was nearly driven insane by his efforts to save his soul from God's wrath by good works and by ritual discipline. But despite seeking with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength to earn God's favor, Luther confessed that he hated God more than he loved Him. Sometimes, he wrote, Christ seems to me nothing more than an angry judge who comes to me with a sword in his hand. Luther had a strong sense that he was under God's curse, subject to God's judgment for his sin. And we might ask, as we think of this man, who is he? He comes from a different era, different time, of course, but did he not know that God is a God of love? He was in a monastery where the Scriptures were considered and taught and He certainly knew that God was a God of love, and indeed He did. But He also knew Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. He knew Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so He knew Romans 1 and verse 18, that the wrath of God descends from heaven against all ungodly and unrighteous. And he knew that was him. He knew God's law demanded that he never lie, that he never lust, that he not steal or hate other people, that he not covet or use God's name in vain, but he did. He knew God's law demanded that he put the interests of others ahead of his own, that he love his neighbor as he loved himself, and that he loved God supremely with all his heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And he did not. He also believed that the righteousness of God was merely God's just punishment of sin. Now as we analyze this mind, these thoughts, which just serve as a test case for our own understanding of who God is and what this text is saying to us today, Luther had some things right. And he had some things wrong. 
What did he have right? What did he have wrong? If you were able to go to the Erford Monastery back in time and sit down on a bench next to him, what would you say, you have this right? And what would, where would you say, this is not right? This is what you need to see. We find that very counsel here in Galatians chapter 3. Indeed, Luther himself did in this book, which he thought sometimes almost was written just for him. Paul has been teaching how we can know that we are part of God's salvation plan, a knowledge that Luther craved but lacked. How can we know we are children of Abraham and that God counts us righteous as Abraham was counted righteous? Remember Galatians 2 and verse 16 where we see in this thematic verse in the book, 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. (coughs) The positive side of that verse is detailed in chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. We look there at the blessing that comes upon Gentiles through faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We look now at verse 10 and look at the other side of the equation. Remembering in verses 7 through 9, and as we've looked at that text before, but the blessing that comes upon Gentiles from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, the inclusion of the Gentiles by faith in Christ crucified and risen. It's really a stunning development in salvation history. That God would choose this nation of Israel to be His select, distinct people, to work out His saving purposes through that nation. And then to bring the Gentiles into the equation in a unique way at the time of Christ's death and resurrection and following. And then to look back and realize that God had been planning this all along. The seeds were there in a place such as Genesis 12 and verse 3. In you, Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. How are we blessed in Abraham? It is ultimately through the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is rejoicing in this truth. He is helping the Galatians to see again how they have embraced this truth and the Spirit has come into their life, has regenerated them and is filling them and changing them and transforming them by this message. And yet there's those coming in, these false teachers who are saying there's a different way. You need to go back to the old era. You need to be circumcised. You need to become part of Abraham's people and by following the old covenant, and Paul says, that's not how you were saved. Why go back there when it's not been necessary to this point? That's part of the point. The blessing comes through Abraham to those who believe. But now, at verse 10, Paul considers the cursing aspect of chapter 2 and verse 16. We are justified by faith, but those who rely on the works of the law, what are we to make of that? He looks in verse 10 through 12, verses 10 through 12 here in chapter 3. He says to us that we remain under God's curse when we seek salvation by works. 
We remain under the curse of God when we seek salvation by works of the law, by simply doing in order to gain the approval of God. Verse 10, let's take it up there. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now what is meant by the law? Again, what is meant by the book of the law? He is speaking here, of course, of the law code revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai by which God covenanted to care for His chosen people Israel, Abraham's offspring. Why is it that everyone who seeks to relate to God by works of the law, the law that God gave, why is it that they are under a curse? It's not that there's anything wrong with the law, and though Paul does not go into detail here on that point, we do have to ask, why would God judge people who are trying to obey what God Himself has commanded? Why are they under a curse? Why are they cursed by God? The key to the answer, though, it's very subtle here. He develops it further in other places. Notice there in verse 10 where it says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. By all things written in the book of the law. There I think it tips us off to what he is thinking in part. There was nothing wrong with God's law given to Moses. It was right for God's people to obey it. But while Paul doesn't explicitly say it here, depending on works of the law keeps us under God's judgment because we don't do it. We fail to keep the law. And so those who are pursuing works of righteousness by keeping the law are under the curse of God. As Luther rightly concluded about himself, people are morally incapable of doing all that God requires in His law. And we could dig even further below this text in verse 10 and stress that under the Old Covenant, you were called upon by God to keep the law. But what happened if you did not? Was there nothing left for you but simply to experience the curse of God? There was a provision, wasn't there? I do not obey the law of God, but there is the provision of an animal sacrifice. An animal being placed in my place, taking my sin, identifying, I identify with that animal that dies, in a sense, for me to atone for sin. It's not a complete system, of course, but there was a way. Well, Paul doesn't bring this out here. If you go back to that old system and you seek to keep the law code perfectly, and you find that you do not, what is the sacrifice? God has moved forward in salvation history to the final sacrifice of the Lamb of God. That is our hope. That is where we find atonement and forgiveness. Going back to that old system, there's no more sacrifice for sin. It's not there any longer. Because Christ has fulfilled it. Now all of that is underneath the surface here of this text and brought out in other places. He doesn't articulate it here. What Paul does do is support this point that those who follow righteousness by works of the law are under God's curse. Using biblical support there in verse 10. He moves on in verses 11 and 12 to in a sense parenthetically support that point. 
Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So there's a thing that you don't keep it perfectly. There's a thing that there's no longer a sacrifice. But here, positively, the Old Testament says the righteous will live by faith. He draws here from Habakkuk 2.4 to stress the contrast of salvation by doing good deeds to secure God's favor and trusting what God has said and done. So the righteous shall live by faith. That could mean that God's people live daily by faith in Christ. That's how we follow God. Or it could mean that God's people will live eternally by faith in Christ. That's how we're declared righteous ultimately. And of course, both would there'd be a case to be made that both are true. Perhaps if we lean this way, that he is saying this is how we have life in God, is by faith. So the key is relating rightly to God is by faith, not by works of the law. And that's a point that Paul now stresses in verse 12. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. You see here the quotation marks likely in your translation of Scripture. He continues to appeal to the Old Covenant appeal to the evidences that are there of, of his, this thinking. And so he draws on this point, the one who does them shall live by them. A very difficult phrase, but let's take the first half of verse 12. But the law is not of faith. He draws a stark contrast between seeking righteousness by faith and seeking it by works of the law. He's contrasting, to put it simply, doing and trusting. A trusting always follows with doing. But here, how are we approved by God? How do we gain access to Him? How do we identify as His people? Is it by what we do? Or is it by our belief in what He has done? That's a crucial distinction that he draws here. The law is not of faith. Even under the Old Covenant, salvation was by faith. He's just mentioned that there in verse 11. The righteous shall live by faith. And he's mentioned this in verse 6. Abraham believed God, and that belief was counted to him as righteousness. So God's law called upon His people to live righteously, but when they failed, forgiveness was attained by way of faith in God's provision. At that point the sacrifice of animals, to take the place of the sinner. God's curse, God's judgment as of, of the sinner was transferred in a sacrificial ceremony onto a sacrificial animal. Symbolically, the sinner placing the hand, let's say, upon the head of a lamb, was saying, I identify with this victim. I deserve to die where this lamb is dying. And I seek to say visually here, in some sense, figuratively, that my sin is transferred onto this lamb. And that lamb would be killed in the sinner's place to atone for sin. And so there is salvation by faith alone under the Old Covenant. And yet the law itself is not a path of faith. Not now, certainly. The one who does them, the second part of verse 12, shall live by them, quotes Leviticus 18.5. It's a difficult phrase to interpret. 
But I think the idea is if the Galatian believers revert to following the Old Covenant by being circumcised, seeking to become a child of Abraham by obeying the commands of the Mosaic Law, that's the them here, those commands of the law, they will need to live by the law. If they seek favor with God that way, there's two problems. We've brought them out here already. A person is not justified by works of the law. That's not what the Scriptures teach. That's problem number one. And problem number two, when you fail to live up to God's law, and you will, there is no sacrifice for sin. So you're going to live by these laws to do what God wants you to do. You're going to need to live perfectly because there's no other sacrifice. You will be under the curse of the law and the judgment of God. That's what he's been stressing here and mentioned in verse 10. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So the key for them, for these Galatian believers, is not to revert to the old era and seek to please God by doing good works, but to know and trust what Jesus has done. When I say that, there's all, there can always be confusion. I don't do good works to please God? Well, do I do good works for some other reason, or do I don't need to do good works because it doesn't please God? That's not, that's not the right uh, follow-up on that statement. But it's how I am approved by God. How do I enter into His family? How do I become His child? Is it by doing good and qualifying myself? Or is it by trusting what He has done to qualify me? That again is a crucial issue. And Paul is saying, just to summarize verses 10 through 12, if you go the route of the law, you will need to keep it perfectly and there will be no sacrifice for sin but let me say this, the just will live by faith. Those that God justifies, those that he declares righteous, get there by trust in what God has done. And so, in these three verses, we remain under God's curse when we seek salvation by works. In that day, for the Galatians, that was submitting to the Mosaic Law. In our day... In our setting here as Gentiles, it might be submitting to some other system of works religion. But I'm going to be a good person and gain God's approval. We remain under God's curse when we go that route. Secondly, verses 13 and 14, we are redeemed from the curse when we trust for salvation in the gospel. So the law is not of faith, and he, we could almost put the word but there at verse 13, but I, I think he, he doesn't even put the word but there because it's so dramatic to turn now to Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Appealing again to the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, he stresses here that Christ has taken our curse. He has taken our place. Let's pour over this for a few moments. There is liberation from the curse the law places on sinners. There is liberation from God's judgment. That is the good news. That redemption does not come by our human efforts 
to please God and qualify ourselves to be His children, how does that freedom come? It comes by Jesus' purchase of our sinful souls out of the marketplace of sin, the word redemption. He buys us back. He delivers us. He frees us. How does Jesus do that? He suffered the Father's judgment when He died on the cross. God did not unjustly dismiss our punishment as if it was no big deal. You have sinned. The accuser has come as we've sung this morning. We know a thousand more sins. But what does it say? God knows none. Not that he's forgetful. Not that he's dismissive of our sin. What was that message saying in that song? His wrath for your sin, for my sin, was placed on Christ. He brought the full weight of His holy anger in judgment upon Jesus. We sang also this morning of the the rod that came down upon Christ. The punishment of the Father upon Him for us. Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross. And thus He became a curse for us. That is epitomized as we see Christ hanging there on the cross when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There He dies as the one cursed. The one bearing the judgment of God. The one forsaken by God. So Jesus took my penalty. He took my place on the cross and redeemed me from God's curse by paying its full price. As we sang, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. And we gather to sing, hallelujah. What a Savior. Christ took the curse that was owed me. He took the punishment that was mine and He paid the cost fully. That's up to you. You can do everything you can possibly do to please God by your good deeds and rest on them and try to be a good person. Or you can take what Jesus has done, and say, I trust that alone. So Luther had a few things right, didn't he? The curse of sin, the judgment of God, does condemn us as sinners. And would that there were more who recognized that in our day. We do break God's law. We do excite His holy anger, His just anger against sin. Luther was not crazy to be traumatized by his sin when he saw no way to deal with it. It is those who remain untroubled by their sin that are crazy. They're missing the way that God sees us and how He views us and what the consequences will be. But where was Luther wrong? And If I was sitting on that bench in the... Erfurt Monastery Gardens and say to him, listen, I'm not going to correct you at all. 
about your sense of being under the curse of God. You're right. That's right. But what did he have wrong? Trying to work off our guilt, pay off our sin, qualify ourselves before God by doing good deeds is just silly. And it's silly in a really dangerous way because we can seek support and strength from our good deeds that damn us. Yes, we are under the curse of the law because we do not fully keep it, but no, we cannot somehow qualify ourselves through good deeds. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree in the Jewish context. Criminals guilty of capital offense were uh, not executed on a cross, not in the Jewish context. But they would be executed and then hung on a pole or a tree or something to display their dead body. Now Paul realizes there's people who are crucified that are innocent. He knows that about Jesus, obviously. He's not saying that if you end up hanging on a tree, it shows you were cursed by God as such. There are innocent people. But what it was saying generally, the law is saying, hanging on a tree is an evidence that you have been judged, that you have been condemned for your sin And it's an evidence of that sin, a very visible evidence in that culture, to hang that body there for all to see. What has to just soften and break our heart is to think that Jesus took that position. He took that place. He hung on that tree bearing the judgment of God in our place. If you're unmoved by that, you're in grave, grave danger. Our task is to bow in humble awe and trust what He accomplished on the cross for sinners. That He took my place and bore the wrath of God for me. He is my righteousness. And when we think about it this way, we put it in this light and we consider it. There are many of you that are bearing great challenges and trials today. But is it not encouraging to see this and recognize my greatest need has been met. This filters everything. It's not that it minimizes the challenges and the trials of life that we face, but it puts it all in perspective. The curse of God has been placed on the head of Christ in my place. His righteousness now becoming mine because I trust that He died to pay the penalty of my sin. He is the Lamb of God. That puts everything else into perspective. If I'm dying, if I'm facing disease, if I'm facing physical malady and trial, I know my future is secure in Christ. If I am dealing with with relational challenges and difficulties and heartaches in this life, I know my greatest need has been met by Christ. I'm no longer under God's curse. Take that with you. Let that 
soak down into your soul and remember that at all times Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That puts everything into perspective. And when I get overwhelmed by the trials of life and the heartaches and the challenges and the difficulties, it is always in part because I start to lose sight of this. Come back to the cross and know that God loves you. And here's the clincher in Galatians 3 to this point. Really the climax of the whole chapter to this place is verse 14. Why did all of this happen? Why has Christ taken our punishment and died to pay the penalty, the curse of sin? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's not all inclusive of why he's doing it, but that's a very significant point here as he brings us out to the Gentile believers of Galatia. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. I think those are two parallel ideas there, the two so-that's in the, in the verse. You see that there in verse 14. There's the so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. It is only through the cross of Christ, ultimately, that Gentiles can, by faith, be received by God as they are, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is what that promise entails now in Christ. The Spirit of God comes, cleanses us of sin, transforms us, is present in our life. And as he said to the Galatians earlier, remember that? When that gospel was preached and you received it and the Spirit of God came into your life and cleansed you from sin, that didn't happen because you were following the works of the law. That happened because you put your faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Remember that. It is by faith. In the first part of the verse, we remember... Genesis 12 and verse 3 again. The promise to Abraham that all families of the earth would be blessed through him. How? Through Jesus' death and resurrection. Our response is to be what? To believe. The result when we do, the Holy Spirit promised in the Old Testament as a blessing of the new covenant comes to minister in our souls. The appropriation, get this, we'll say it over and over and over through Galatians, it is by faith in Jesus alone. One day Luther learned the meaning of Paul's counsel in this book. And he wrote this, My situation was that although an impeccable monk... I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him, that it would satisfy his anger against my sin. Therefore, I hear it, these are honest words of confession. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. There's a cue there for us as we talk to unbelievers. They may seem to hate and murmur against God. Some of them just have no answer for how the judgment of God can be satisfied. 
Now, we live in a culture where there's the vast majority don't even have a tinge of conscience ever. They've forgotten how to blush. There is no shame. There is no sense of curse. But there are some who curse God and despise God and want nothing to do with Him because they have no idea how He has loved them and how they can come to know Him by His grace. But that's where Luther was and said, I hated Him. I hated God. I loved God in one strange sense and hated Him at the same time. But what was it that set Luther free? In his own statement, it was finally grasping the phrase that we've read here today, the just will live by faith. That was it. The just will live by faith. And it wasn't like he'd never read that before, never thought about that before, but it was that the Spirit of God came and opened his eyes to this truth. Hey, I live by faith. I live by what Christ has done. Do I obey God? Yes, I obey God but I obey Him not to gain His favor. I trust in what Christ has accomplished. On that day, he said that he saw the righteousness of God was not only God's right judgment of sinners, but also His righteous standing, which He gives to sinners by mercy when they believe in the Gospel. Believe me, trust me, and I give you this gift of righteousness. Try to work it out on your own. Try to please me with your obedience and your good deeds. You'll never gain access to a holy God that way. No more works of self-righteousness to gain the favor of God. Luther was delivered from the guilt and anxiety of his sin. He saw for the first time that Christ redeemed sinners from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us and saw that it was then in union with Christ that blessing would come. And this by simple childlike faith in Christ crucified and risen. So verse 14, to stress this, and this perhaps others more than Luther himself, but that phrase, in Christ Jesus, is everything. It's everything here. It is in union with Jesus Christ that I gain the righteousness of God. It's His status that gets me in the door. It's what He has done that secures me for eternity. It's in Christ. It's being joined to Him by faith. And so, of this phrase, the just will live by faith, I quote Luther again who said, that this is the article upon which the church stands or falls. The article upon which the church stands or falls. And you know, like him, I just use him as an example who is uh, so classic in this battle with sin and righteousness. But just like Martin Luther, you're on a journey too. Each one of us here is on a spiritual journey of coming to know God and know how we are to relate with God. And so I ask you, what do you have right? What do you have wrong? Are you relying on what you do? Or are you relying in trust and confident belief in what Christ has done for you already. I remind you that it's all about the good news, not about the good project. 
It's news about what has already happened. It's news about a past event. It's news that we recognize and celebrate and trust and put our confidence in. It's not a list. It's not a notebook. It's not the good project. Now, obviously, there is a project that follows as we follow Christ, but we're talking about how do we enter into a right standing with Him. Are you depending on your performance of good deeds, or are you truly depending on Jesus Christ crucified and risen? If you have the sense that you must do good deeds in order to qualify as God's child, know this, you've got to get this, you can never sin. We'll say, theoretically, you could go to heaven by being perfectly good, but it needs to be perfectly. No lying, no lust, no greed, no coveting, no hatred of others, no self-centeredness, loving others as you love yourself and loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength all the time perfectly. If that's a project you want to go out of here and take up, I pity you, frankly. I, I mean, I say that kindly, but I just, I pity you. It isn't going to happen. But if you know yourself to be a sinner, if you know that there is no way that you could qualify yourself before God by your own righteousness, if you know you need God's grace, the good news is that by trusting not your works, but Jesus Christ, what He has done to pay the penalty of your sins, you can be forgiven And the status of righteousness that you could never achieve by your own good deeds is given to you as a gift. It is placed on your account, His righteousness, because He truly did pay the curse and its penalty. You can have a right standing with God in only one way. Paul stresses here in this book. And the Spirit of God is teaching us again and again. It is only by faith in what Jesus has done. There was a day that message dawned on Martin Luther. Has it dawned on you? Have you come to that place and celebrate every day and base your life every day upon this truth? It is Christ's righteousness. It is His death paying the cost of my sin. That's what I trust in. Have you come to that place? Perhaps that truth is dawning on you today. And you might even say, well, I've been around a long time, or I, I, I live in a Christian home. I've heard these truths over and again, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm seeing it. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation, and don't be proud. Humbly come before the Lord and say, I receive your gift of righteousness. And as I do, my hands are open. I don't bring with me my works. I don't tell you how I've qualified. I see Jesus Christ on the cross and know that there He is bearing the weight and the penalty of my sin. And I trust Him. I trust that payment. And I know that He rose from the dead to give me life. And I embrace that gift by faith. Today is the day of salvation. Trust 
in that gift. Father, I pray that you would do the work that you alone can do. That by the Spirit of God, you would bring new life to those who are dead in sin and trespasses, to those who have sought by so much effort to please you, by those who have not sought much effort at all. I pray that you would draw to saving faith those who are trusting in their righteousness and that they would begin to trust in Christ alone. For those of us who have, I pray that we will constantly be coming back to this message of Christ crucified and risen. I pray that we would test our own spirit to sense whether we are making progress in this faith and in this trust or whether we are beginning to rely upon our own good deeds. And Lord, I pray that good deeds would indeed flow from our acknowledgement that it is your righteousness that is ours now. And I pray that as an assembly we would grow in faith and grow in hope and grow in confidence that you have indeed redeemed your people. You have broken the power of canceled sin. You have set the prisoners free. And I pray that we would trust that message and know it to be true and work it out in our lives as we walk in faith upon that revealed truth. Guide to that end and do a work uniquely spiritually here among us and in our hearts as we close out this time together. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask and in his name that we rejoice in your presence. Amen. I invite you to stand with me and just for a few brief